Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. He, he really has a deep animosity to the press. So keep reminding yourself, this is not normal. And we've normalized it already. Less than a week after the election is over, suddenly Washington is going about its business, talking about who's going to get what jobs, and you would think that Mitt Romney had won. It's a hallucination. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. This is Virginia Heffernan again, sitting in for the mastermind Jacob Weisberg. So the Trump administration continues to build out. And while Trump seems to have quieted some of the saber rattling of his campaign, telling The New York Times, for instance, he has no plans to lock her up. He was just kidding. Actual plans and proposals are now coming into play. Among these blueprints is a short document by Chris Kobach, the Secretary of State in Kansas, and advisor to Trump. Called Kobach Strategic Plan for First 365 Days, the document appears to be a draconian approach to immigration for the United States. First off, Kobach seems to want to reverse Obama's effort to bring in Syrian refugees and instead shut them all out. More controversially yet, he wants to dust off a post-9-11 program called the National Security Entry-Exit Registration System, or NSEERS. This program requires immigrants 16 and older from 25 nations to register in the U.S. Registration includes fingerprinting and rigorous questioning on subjects ranging from credit card numbers, bank accounts, to families and friends. To talk more about this is Asla Bali. She's a professor of law at UCLA and the director of the UCLA Center for Near Eastern Studies. She's also co-chair of the Advisory Council of Human Rights Watch's Middle East and North African Division. Welcome, Asla, to Trumpcast. Great. Thanks for having me, Virginia. So, Asla, this document by Chris Kobach is described as laying out a hardline immigration program Hardline doesn't seem to be extreme enough a word to describe this. Tell us more about the history of this program and its potential future. Yeah, um, that's Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach, who is on Trump's transition team. But previously, he was in the Bush administration, and he was actually one of the architects of this program, which is known by its acronym in Sears, but often was referred to as special registration or even Muslim registration. So when it was first introduced in 2002, it was rolled out over a number of months. And initially, it appeared to be focused on states that were listed 
by the State Department as sponsors of terrorism, but quickly it became clear that the list was far larger and included 25 countries, 24 of which were Muslim-majority countries. In fact, the only sizable Muslim countries not included on the registry were Uzbekistan and Turkey. Otherwise, every major Muslim-majority country in the world was included. And anybody from this country that came to the United States as a student, as a tourist, as a business person, so not citizens and not green card holders, but everybody else uh, was required to register either at the time that they entered or if they were already in the country on a valid visa when the program was introduced, they were required to affirmatively report to various offices run by either the Department of Justice or later the Department of Homeland Security to register themselves. This program generated incredible fear in the time that it operated, especially in the years 2002-2003 when it was first being rolled out, and also confusion. It was unclear how you were supposed to comply, who exactly had to comply. What if you were a Christian from a Muslim-majority country like you're a Lebanese Christian? Did you have to comply? Technically, the answer was clearly yes, although it was equally apparent that that wasn't the purpose of the program. And what the program ultimately did over the about um, eight, nine years that was uh, operative was produce the registration of almost 100,000 people who had to come in and answer very detailed questions and provide lots of information about themselves, ranging from their bank accounts and their credit card information to information about their um, family and friends and so forth to the government, resulting also in thousands of deportation proceedings, over 13,000 deportation proceedings amongst those who did register. But also it produced a huge pool of people who didn't register because they didn't understand what the rules were or because they entered on a valid visa and were never apprised that the program applied to them and that they needed to come forward affirmatively. And all of those people were put in the position of being out of compliance with immigration law and could at any time be picked up, detained, and deported as well. So tell me what the implications of this were for the Muslim community. So it had a lot of really adverse consequences, um, including you know tearing families apart amongst especially those families affected by the 13,000-plus deportations. What it didn't do is produce any actionable information about terrorism. It was rolled out as a counterterrorism program. There's not a single publicly known terrorism prosecution that came out of any part of special registration. Moreover, a lot of the registration information required at the time of Muslims is now more generally required under U.S. visit, a different immigration registration program that's applicable to all visitors to the United States. And so ultimately, the Obama administration in 2011 suspended the program by delisting the 25 countries, saying that, look, it's redundant with our new broader registration programs. But in fact, it was, as you suggested, the ethical issues raised by a program that appeared to be targeting people and profiling them on the basis of religion, and that was engaging in targeted deportations of groups that weren't on a priority list in the sense that they weren't accused of having committed crimes, they weren't doing anything other than being um, out of some compliance with some aspect of their civil immigration file. So that's the old program that Chris Kobach was the architect of, and that was, I think, For many lawyers working at the time, it just looked like a program designed to force Muslim men into a position of being detainable and deportable by generating new technical rules that were difficult to comply with and very confusing. And then if you failed to comply, you became deportable, even though you were otherwise on a perfectly valid visa and in compliance with immigration law. Now, this was at a time when the attorney general at the time, John Ashcroft, was using explicitly immigration programs to hold people in preventive detention. He said, 
that they would use immigration as a basis to hold as many Muslim men, Arab and Muslim men in the country as possible, as part of the investigation of the 9-11 attacks in the absence of any evidence of those individuals being connected to the crimes, but just as a precaution. So if we can hold them, we will hold them. That's really what terrified communities. Now, if we take a look at the campaign season that we just came out of and the number of times Islamophobia and conflation of Muslims with terrorism was deployed specifically by uh, Donald Trump as candidate, you can see why the resurrection of a program like this would be extremely troubling, both to uh, the Muslim community and to civil rights advocates. So you, you're you saying that NSEERS was never really an investigative mechanism for counterterrorism. Now, this administration, and certainly Stephen Bannon, seems willing to say, we're not putting this under cover of a national origin question or that this is some kind of police work or mechanism for counterterrorism. This is straight up purification of the of the so-called civic society, you know, that will ultimately apply to every non-white or non-quote European citizen or or visitor. Yeah, I mean, again, it's an extremely troubling backdrop when you have someone like Steve Bannon uh, serving as, as an advisor in this transition and just serving as an advisor generally to the president-elect who used the news platform that he once ran, Breitbart, to feature all kinds of just conspiracy theorists, particularly Islamophobic conspiracy theorists are the ones that I'm most familiar with, but also obviously a broader range of just, you know, straightforwardly racist discourse that this advisor is now in a position to help determine whether or not to adopt programs like the one we were just talking about in Sears with the goal of deliberately targeting communities on the basis of their religion, as an example. And I mean, it's pretty clear from the material that was leaked because Chris Kobach, again, was photographed holding his plan and, uh, you know, a powerful zoom lens can then read the text of the plan that wasn't obscured by his hand. One element was to engage in so-called extreme vetting questions to enhance what had previously been done under special registration. And these extreme vetting questions are clearly intended to focus on Islam as such. So, for example, a question would be whether you support Sharia law or what your views are on jihad or what your views are on the equality of men and women. Uh, Just listing a set of attributes of beliefs relating to a religion as part of a so-called ideological screening program, is the equivalent of saying we're screening out adherents of this religious belief, this religious faith community, and that's incredible. And as you say, it seems to fit into a broader pattern of suggesting that various people of different ethnic, racial, and religious backgrounds simply don't belong in the United States. That's fundamentally unconstitutional as a position, but it also seems to be consistent with the positions taken up during the campaign by the president-elect and his advisors. So tell me about the constitutional status, since you since you brought that up, of NSEERS, and if there are, you know, grounds on which to challenge it. I know that Kobach has likened it to other effective measures of, you know, quarantining ethnic groups that are seen as enemies of the United States, including, you know, he's referred to the American effective, I think he said, American treatment of Japanese during the Second World War, you know, and then he was shocked, shocked to hear that turned into an an endorsement of internment camps. Hmm. Um, How, I mean, there must be safeguards in place to stop NSEERS, especially 
resurrected on this new grounds that it is openly an effort to restrict religious freedoms. Yes, I think that's right. So the earlier version of INSEER special registration as a program was targeted on the basis of national origin, and it was repeatedly justified on that basis. And by building the program around national origin instead of religion, there was the hope that it would survive constitutional scrutiny, and indeed it did under the Bush administration. But it was also clear at the time that had the administration built the program around religion or religious identity, then it would have been in violation of constitutional rights, including equal protection and the First Amendment and a host of others. So in this instance, in a time when it does appear that the new version of the program would be based on a form of basically religious animus, the idea that the animus towards Muslims that was a hallmark of the presidential campaign would now be the backdrop against which um, insiers would be defended, I think it would be much easier to mount a constitutional challenge because although courts have in the past upheld registration of visitors from certain countries, there there is good reason to think that if the registration program could be tied to discrimination on the basis of religion, then they would find violations of the First Amendment and of equal protection under the Constitution. So tell me a little bit about, you know, sometimes I think that it's a red herring to talk about the effectiveness of a policy like this, that it that it didn't turn up any terrorists the last time special registration was employed beginning in 2002. You know, it's a little like saying the problem with waterboarding is it doesn't work. Once you start saying that, you know, advocates of torture might say back to you, well, here's other data that shows it does work. And you've shifted the question from the Constitution and ethics to um, an efficacy question, which, you know, might cut both ways. But I still want to focus on how uh, and why this program was completely ineffective and, and, and what you make of that. I mean, is there... Is there another program useful as a counterterrorist measure that doesn't work this way? Well, let's begin just by saying, like, what works in law enforcement typically, right? Because counterterrorism is basically a form of policing work to try to disrupt particular kinds of criminal conspiracies. What typically does work is investigation and individualized basis for suspicion, where you have reason to think that an individual is actively doing something, is engaged in some conduct that is related to the kind of criminal activity you're interested in. Here, all of these programs are status-based only. So they don't require any conduct by individuals. They have no fine-grained mechanism for looking at individuals even. They just gather all individuals across a single characteristic and then scrutinize that pool. So what that, in effect, does is if you're looking for a needle in a haystack, you've basically radically expanded the size of your haystack. That's the point to be made around effectiveness of broad-based community targeting in which whole groups whether on the basis of race or ethnicity or religion, are deemed to be the relevant pool without any individualized determination about any particular member, you basically radically expand the um, arena or the area in which you're looking for a very tiny sliver of criminal activity. That is an ineffective strategy. Whether that's the principal argument one should make against the strategy is a very good question. If the strategy also depends on racial or religious discrimination, then clearly it is suspect 
regardless of its effectiveness. And even if it could be shown to be effective, it would remain impermissible under our Constitution to discriminate on the basis of race or religion. And that, happily, is not something, um, as far as I can see, that is likely to um, be challenged as a matter of constitutional interpretation. Fast forward to today, when we've heard talk about as you say, Japanese internment camps as precedent. Carl Higby mentioned that on Fox News to Megyn Kelly as an example that this was a precedent to be built upon. I think almost no graduate of an American law school was ever trained to believe that Korematsu is good law. I just want to jump in for a second and say Korematsu was, of course, the landmark Supreme Court case concerning the constitutionality of ordering Japanese Americans into internment camps during World War II. There are numbers of constitutional, um, I mean, Supreme Court precedents that have never been explicitly overturned, but clearly are no longer sound law. And Korematsu is in that panoply, together with Dred Scott and a number of other decisions that weren't ever explicitly reversed, in part because the question was never posed again. You didn't have a second set of internment proposals that the court could deliberate upon to overturn the underlying precedent of Korematsu. I very much hope that a President Trump doesn't produce that opportunity for the Supreme Court to revisit Korematsu. But very, I think there is almost no sound constitutional lawyer in the country that would describe that as a precedent to build on. It has been repeatedly repudiated in speeches by justices, including justices like Antonin Scalia when he was alive, identifying it as a specifically suspect case that was no longer good law. Knowing you, I I know how recommitted you are to the work you do at uh, UCLA and and globally, uh, you know, on behalf of, you know, I was going to say progressive causes or Muslims, but on, on behalf of, let's call it normalcy. But I also am interested in whether there's short-term work that might be done by Obama before he leaves the White House. Um, is he, do, is there some possibility that he could shut down and Sears for good and prevent its resurrection by the Trump administration? Well, he could certainly repeal the structure um, of Sears, but whether that would prevent it from being resurrected, I think, is a separate question. It would slow the process of reconstructing it. It might end up being restructured differently, but beyond slowing the sort of rebuilding of this infrastructure it would be difficult for him to prevent it fully. I still think it's very much worth doing. As I say, having existing programs just on the shelf is very frightening because in the in a phrase I keep hearing since the election, they represent fully loaded weapons. Mm. And so at least unloading these weapons at this point to the extent possible across a wide array of areas, I mean, on the international front, the Obama administration repudiated torture as a practice, but failed to engage in accountability and then fought investigation and transparency around the practices of the Bush administration, including by suppressing essentially the um, Senate Select Committee's report on the torture practices. That report should be published in full and made part of the public record so that it can be very clear what happened, why it was found unacceptable unconstitutional in violation of international law and why it was stopped in order to provide the public record that can be used going forward for advocates to resist any attempt to reintroduce these practices. And so there are a number of places where the Obama administration could desist from actions that 
essentially undermine advocacy efforts to to maintain and build on accountability for government. The Obama administration could also act to reverse its approach to whistleblowers and to establish a framework um, that would be much more protective of whistleblowers going forward. And that, again, one can see there's a range of ways in which executive power has been used also under the Obama administration to investigate and to pursue individuals providing information and to prevent transparency and accountability from being institutionalized. I think it's really important to find ways to reverse those positions and to immediately embrace structures of accountability in the remaining days of the Obama administration. Um, I guess the one last thing I'd love for you to do is tell us a little bit about how a program like special registration plays out in a Muslim community, at a mosque, at a mo- in families, how it you know specifically affects day-to-day life. Well, for starters, there were people who moved out of Muslim concentration communities for fear that they were going to face um, increased scrutiny by virtue of living in a neighborhood amongst their family and friends. So they would leave abandoned parts of Michigan and New York and elsewhere and move elsewhere in the country where they were less likely to face concentrated forms of scrutiny. Many, many of the hundred, almost 100,000 men who came forward to comply with special registration did so in good faith, thinking that they were doing it to comply with U.S. law and to show that they are good American Muslims, only to find themselves ensnared in deportation proceedings, often really without any understanding of why. So the effect was profound uh, in the New York, New Jersey area, especially, which I was most familiar with at the time um, I was living here and working in these communities. The fear was palpable, the total unwillingness to engage in any way with law enforcement for fear that it might produce a deportation of a son or a brother or husband, uh, and the cost to those families that lost breadwinners and family members to deportation proceedings was really very great. But I mean, I just, I can remember trying to do civil rights work in this community and trying to organize a meeting to have community leaders come to New York to meet with a group of lawyers and having the community basically say, we're terrified of traveling to Manhattan and we're afraid of using subways. And so that's not possible. We can't uh, have a meeting in Manhattan. You'll have to come to our separate community organizations where we're located because we're too afraid to use public transport or to travel around New York City in order to meet with you. These weren't people whose status was in question. These weren't people who were likely to be subject to any of these programs. But the fear had become so great of any encounter that even though these were leaders of their own communities, they were too afraid to travel within New York City on public transport to meet with lawyers to talk about the challenges their communities faced. Wow. All right. Tell us, um, before we go, um, what can be done to push back or even, you know, attempt to preempt the resurrection of special registration? Are you, you know, helping to organize another meeting like the one you you tried to organize in New York? Is there, you know, a way the ACLU can have its efforts bolstered to challenge NCERS? Yeah, there are many, many things everyone can do. The first thing is call your congressperson and make known repeatedly that you oppose these policies and that you want your congressperson to put on record that they oppose these policies. There was a, there was some congressional pushback um, when NSEERS was first put in place. And even during the Bush administration, aspects of the program were dropped basically to make it 
more plausible that people could comply for starters, but also because there was tremendous scrutiny and pushback on this degree of draconian discrimination on the basis of national origin. So contact your congressperson. The one thing that is different 15 years later is that many of the most vulnerable communities have built bridges of coalitions to other communities and specifically to the civil rights um, and civil liberties community of lawyers. And so they are, I hope, going to be well represented and there will be a vigorous attempt mounted to challenge legally, constitutionally, politically attempts by the president-elect and his advisors to resurrect these and other programs. Of course, the challenge is we now are in a political context in which the Senate, the House, and increasingly the federal judiciary is dominated by Republicans. And under those circumstances, another critical element will be to identify those Republicans within the Republican Party who are committed to constitutionalism, who are libertarian, who have a set of commitments that would themselves be willing to resist elements of the administration's plans and and to build common cause beyond progressives and beyond the Democratic Party to try to mount an effective resistance across the branches of government. And, and, you know, that's the work that we have ahead of us, I hope, for no more than four years. Well, we live in uh, interesting, turbulent times. Um, thank you for shedding light on it. Sometimes ideas and insight um, are can be healing. Um, and uh, and you've, you've supplied us with so many. Thank you so much, Asla. Thank you so much for having me, Virginia. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And that's all for today's show. Trumpcast is produced by Jason DeLeon. Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is our chief content officer at Panoply. And I'm Virginia Heffernan, sitting in for Jacob Weisberg. We'll be back after the break with more Trumpcast. Happy Thanksgiving. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.